0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Holy Waiting. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul encourages Christians in the midst of an ungodly culture to live in holiness as they eagerly await the return of Jesus. This morning's text is going to be 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 4 to 10. It's there in the uh, handout you were given this morning. They'll also be up here on the screens this week. I'm actually using the English Standard Version. I'll be preaching out of the English Standard Version this morning. First Thessalonians chapter one, beginning verse four, and going to verse ten. Hear now the words of the living, ruling God. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That shows that there are 364 days when you might get unbirthday presents. Certainly. Certainly said Alice, and only one day for birthday presents, you know, that's glory for you. I I don't know what you mean by glory, Alice said. Humpty Dumpty smiled contemptuously. Of course you don't, till I tell you. I meant there's a nice knockdown argument for you. But glory doesn't mean a nice knockdown argument, Alice objected. When I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said in a rather scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. I begin that way this morning because when we approach the book of 1 Thessalonians, as I've said, the two major themes of the entire book are eschatology and holiness. And the entire church has practiced humpty-dumpty theology with both of those. We've made them mean what we want them to mean rather than what God has actually told us that they mean. Uh, eschatology, as we saw last week, we think about trying to predict dates for Jesus coming back and coming up with charge but the New Testament says that's not what eschatology is about. Eschatology is actually a motivation to holiness now, not endlessly debating over things that God has told us we actually don't know. And the other word, holiness, has the same problem. Like Humpty Dumpty, people have chosen to take that word and make it mean all kinds of things. So when we think of holiness, oftentimes what comes to mind is for example, perhaps Hasidic Jews. You remember the, the guys with the long hair and they sit at the wailing wall and they bow back and forth and people look and say, well, that, that's holy. Or perhaps we think of a monk in a cowl, you know, the guys with the, the brown Star Wars looking uh, garb on that comes out of the Middle Ages. We say, well, that's, that's holiness. You retreat away from the world and you live where all you do is pray and read scriptures and those kind of things. Or perhaps it's the Amish. And we just say, well, we, we didn't completely retreat off into a monastery, but we kind of freeze time at a certain place and say that's what our holiness is going to be. Or you can move forward. I grew up down south where there was a large holiness movement contingent within uh, the more evangelical church, which was all about rules, usually for women what they could wear and what they could not wear. It was largely about clothing and makeup and how you did your hair and things like that. And all of those are definitions of holiness. But the problem is, that's Humpty Dumpty theology. And with Alice, we have to ask the question whether you can make words mean so many different things. What is Holiness. Last week, we saw some about eschatology. This week, we're going to see about holiness and what it means to be a holy people. What does God mean when he says we are a holy people? Well, let's dive into the text. So there's a, we are a holy chosen people. That's what Paul tells us is central to understanding holiness, that we are a holy people, are chosen and set apart by God. In 1 Thessalonians uh, Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we read, and remember this is all part of one long sentence, from the very beginning of the letter all the way through verse 5, Paul's got one long sentence going. We break it down in English to make it a little bit easier, but this is all still continuing Paul's prayer in the sentence there, and he says, for we know, or knowing brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. So Paul says, here's what we know about you Thessalonians, that God has chosen you. And this was the third part of his thanks. Remember last week we went through the multiple reasons that he gave thanks and the last one was we give you thanks because, or we give God thanks because we know that God has chosen you. You were chosen by God and this means that you are loved by God. the, the we, we know that being God's chosen means you are loved by God as his people. And this A phrase that Paul is using here quite clearly comes from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. The same terms are used, and they're really not used together like this except in these texts. And in Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8, as Israel is on the edge of the promised land and they are looking forward to crossing the Jordan and going into the promised land, Moses tells them this, speaking for the Lord, it is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. Now, it's the same thing. You are, you are loved by God and you are chosen by God. And it's not because you are more in number, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord brought you out with the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so God told Israel Here's why you were redeemed. Here's why I brought you out of Egypt, and I brought you out of slavery, and I made you my own. Not because of anything you did. You are my holy people, not because of anything you did, but because of what I did. Not because of anything that is found inside you, but because what is found inside me. God goes on and tells him in 7, in fact, you were not only not the most numerous people, you were the least numerous people. Everything that would have caused me to choose someone, you were completely and utterly lacking in. Here's why I chose you, because I decided to choose you. Here's why I chose you, because I made an oath with your fathers. I made an oath to Abraham. And because of that covenant, I have now delivered you, I have brought you out, and made you my own. Now, You may wonder, what does this have to do with holiness? The basic meaning of the word holy is to be set apart, to be distinct. It means if you have a group of things and you pull one of them out and you move it apart, you are saying this is now holy because it is set apart and it is distinct. And God says, Israel, there were many, many, many nations. You were being swallowed up in Egypt. You were just part of a whole group of people in Egypt, but I chose you, and I pulled you out, and in doing so, I made you holy. I made you my own people. And Paul takes this language and says to the Thessalonians, you're the same way. Just like God elected and chose Israel, now you are the new Israel. You are the fulfillment of what Israel was pointing forward to, and I have chose you, not because of who you are or what you did, but simply because I loved you. I chose you, you did not choose me. And so we are holy, not because of what we do, but because of what God has done in choosing and saving us in Christ. The first fundamental fact about holiness is, holiness is about what God does, not about what you and I do. And so if we set off and we start saying, well, holiness is, and we start listing things that we do, we are engaging in Humpty Dumpty theology. We're making the word mean something that it did not really mean. Because holiness is what God does, not what we do. And Paul goes on and says that we know, uh, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And so he says, God's holy chosen people believe the gospel. Paul cannot see election. Election. Paul was not there in eternity past when all of that went on. He can't see it. What does Paul see? He says, here's what I saw. The gospel came to you, not just in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. When we came and we were preaching among you, the Holy Spirit came powerfully and he worked. And as he worked It was not an empty proclamation, but the powerful word being used by the Holy Spirit to draw you to Christ. Paul says, that's what I saw, and I am grateful for that because I realize that behind that you must be chosen and loved by God. You would have never responded to the gospel if it were not for the fact that God had loved and chosen you. This is very similar, you could write down another verse, I won't open it up today, but it 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul uses basically the same words. It says, Our message and our preaching not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's words, but on God's power. And so the powerful word had come to the Thessalonians. And this gospel, when they heard it, miraculously, it produced true repentance and faith in them. Most of the Thessalonians rejected the gospel, but these people who were being worked on by the Holy Spirit believed, and Paul said, and here's the outflow of that, I saw repentance and faith. This is down in verse nine. He says, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, remember, if you go back and you read Acts 17, how did most Thessalonians respond to Paul and the apostolic team? Did they like them? No. In fact, you remember, they threatened them, they ran them out of town, and when Paul and the team went down to Berea, the next town, what did a bunch of the Thessalonians do? They followed them to Berea to try and shut down the ministry there. So Paul says, the fact is that most people in Thessalonica, this large, important city, most of them reacted with hostility towards us. But here's the miracle, you didn't. When most of the people around you were rejecting us, you received us warmly. And secondly, you not only did that, but you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So you repented. You, like everybody else, were facing and embracing your idols. And when we came, they rejected us and clung to their idols. But you, of all the miracles, embraced the gospel, and you turned from the idols, and you believed in the living and true God. You embraced him by faith. You repented and turned from idols, turned and embraced the true God by faith. This phrase is actually coming from Jeremiah 10.10. 10. I won't put it up there, where Jeremiah is excoriating among the people of Judah and saying you were called away from idols to the true and living God. The same two descriptors of God are used because idols are false gods and idols are are dead. And so the true God is true, not false, and the true God is living, not dead. And so just like Jeremiah had spoken to Judah and said, look, you were called away from that idolatry, and to be God's chosen people means you turn from idols and you embrace the true and living God by faith, Paul says you Thessalonians did the same thing. And in fact, he goes on and says, even furthermore, I can see evidence of God's election and choosing and loving of you and the fact that you received the gospel with joy in spite of affliction. Verse 6, it said, You became imitators of us and the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. When God's Spirit is at work, even persecution cannot stop the reception of the gospel. In fact, historically, the more the enemy persecutes, the firmer root the gospel seems to take hold in the people. The more they strike them down, which is the same experience in Israel. The more they tried to crush Israel and Egypt, the greater they grew in number and the stronger they grew. The same thing happens. Persecution cannot stop the work of the Spirit. It cannot stop the advance of the gospel. And so the gospel here is received with joy no matter the persecution that arises. Because the essence of holiness is turning from false gods uh, of our age and embracing the true and living God by faith, no matter the cost. If you are holy, if I am holy, and we have been set apart by God, as, as Peter called, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. If that is in fact who we are, it does not matter what idols of our age, it does not matter what persecution arises, it will not stop the Word of God. It will not stop the Spirit of God from doing His work because a holy people have been called and loved and chosen by God and set apart for Him. Paul goes on and says, A holy people also have a holy mission. A holy people have a holy mission. And so they had a mission to model true holiness before the watching world. In verses 6 and 7, he said, So as you received us, as you as, as God's calling and election became evident in your response to the gospel. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So their joyful reception of the gospel, even in affliction, was a model for other people to follow. And he says here, you're following the way, not only of us, but also of the Lord, because we're told Jesus was persecuted for holding to and speaking forth the word of God. And so Paul says, look, when you have that reception by your fellow countrymen, when they reject you, that's the same thing they did to us. It's the same thing they did to Jesus. We know Paul actually preached in Acts 13, I think it's 52, he actually said that, look, it's through many hardships that we enter into the kingdom of God. Or Peter's, don't be surprised by this, And so Paul's telling the Thessalonians, look, you responded the right way, just like we did, just like Jesus did. And therefore, just like Jesus is our model, just like we are a model to other believers, you now have become a model. You are on mission because you've become a model to others for how to respond to the word of God. As those who respond to the call of the gospel, believers are a model for those to whom the Spirit is now calling. How often do you hear, if you read, where particularly in situations of persecution, people are amazed when they watch how believers respond to the persecution, that they are willing to suffer for the word of God, and God uses that to draw the very persecutors in. We see this over and over again in church history. And here's the earliest example with the Thessalonian believers. Again, one of the earliest letters in the New Testament where Paul says, this is exactly what has happened. You've become a model." but not only are you a model, Paul says, you are sending forth the word to other people in places. Verse eight, not only is the word of the Lord sounded from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So the word of the Lord is ringing forth. It's kind of an unusual word. It's almost like an echoing. It's a bell ringing and you're hearing the echo. And Paul says, the word of God is spreading forth from you. So you receive the word from us in the midst of a lot of affliction, but you had such joy in the Holy Spirit because the gospel had come to you that now the gospel is going out from you. And so, although the Thessalonians are new to the faith, even though they are small in number, and even in the face of severe persecution, they're taking God's word forth because holy people are on mission. That's what holiness is about. They are on mission. And so notice, they're actually even, they're taking the word locally, Macedonia, that's the part of Greece where Thessalonica actually is, and down to Achaia. That's down where Athens and Corinth are, where Paul is probably writing from Corinth as he's writing back. And he's saying, hey, when I got down here, the word has come here with you guys. Thessalonica was a city that, remember, it was big, it was important, it had a big seaport, and so apparently they are sending the word forth. It doesn't matter that they're new, it doesn't matter that they are small in number, it doesn't matter that they are suffering. They are not on the defensive, because a holy people are on the offensive. They are on mission. They are taking God's word forth locally and around the world. And Paul says, as the word's going forth, so is the word of your faith. When we show up places, and I want to say, hey, when we were in Thessalonica, they're like, yeah, we know. We've already heard about that. This guy came through last week, told us what happened there. That was amazing. Paul says, everywhere we go, we don't even have to tell people. They've already heard. So a holy people have been set apart for mission to send God's word to other people and places. That's what it means to be holy is to send God's word forth. So this is is not Humpty Dumpty theology. This is not about growing your hair some kind of a strange way. This is not about wearing particular clothing that makes you look, or freeze-framing and saying, it was really a great time in 1750 or 1850 or 1950. That's Humpty Dumpty theology. Real theology says, no, holiness is about this. I was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, now I see. I was dead, and God made me alive in Christ Jesus. And it was his work, not mine. And now as his holy, set-apart people, we are on mission. We are looking. Who does not know? Where can I take the word of God? We are not looking to retreat and withdraw. We are looking for where the word of God has not yet gone. In other words, it's the exact opposite of what we oftentimes think because we have been taught humpty-dumpty theology rather than biblical theology. So, holiness means we first look back to God's electing work in saving us. So I can honestly tell anybody else, hey, I'm not saved because I was smarter or better than anything else. God had mercy on me in Christ, and I'm proclaiming to you the same gospel I heard and received. Secondly, I look around me currently, and I'm saying, where has the mission not gone? Where has the word not gone? And I am on mission to get it there. And then thirdly, Paul tells us there is a holy hope where a holiness looks forward. And what it looks forward to is the return of Christ. Verses 9 and 10, Paul says that you know, everybody tells us the kind of reception we've had, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And here's the other thing you did you not only turned from idols, and turned to God, you also began to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. They had turned from God, a uh, turn from dead false idols to the living and true God. That's the reception of the gospel. But secondly, Paul says, you've now become a people of hope. You are looking forward to the return of Christ. Before you had no thought of that, that now is what animates you. Your hope is in Jesus. And he uses this phrase, he says, whom God raised from the dead, because he's reminding them, look, I know when you turn from idols and you turn to God, everybody around you turned on you. And the Christian life did not bring you your best life now. In fact, it cost you your best life now. And I know that that is tough. And in fact, some of you may be suffering and some of you may even be put to death. But I want to remind you this, your hope is in Jesus whom God raised from the dead. Because not even death has the last word. It does not matter. You receive the word just like Jesus did, and they put Jesus to death. But I remind you, Jesus was raised from the dead. And just as the Father raised Jesus from the dead, even if you are put to death, God will raise you from the dead. This is our hope. And so they are imitators of Jesus, holding to God and His word even under suffering, And if you follow Him in suffering, you're going to follow Him in glory. And just like God raised Him, He will raise you. And so the final day, Paul is reminding us here, will be one of wrath for those who refuse God and refuse the gospel, but it will be one of deliverance for all who embrace God and the gospel by faith. We see this principle over and over again in Scripture. When Israel comes to the Red Sea, It is a day of destruction and death for the Egyptians who refused the gospel. But it is a day of life and salvation for Israel. And so it is on the day that Christ will return. Notice Paul says it is wrath to come. Now, that is a very popular message today. If you want to be popular with your neighbors, just tell them I got news for you about wrath that's coming on your head. And you deserve it. It'll make you extremely popular with all your friends. right? We, We don't want to hear about this. But here's the fact. Whether you and I think about it or not, the day of wrath is coming. Paul refers to the return of Christ as the day of wrath, the coming wrath, because there will be wrath for those who refuse God and the gospel. This is part of why we're back in step two as a holy people. We are called into mission because we are here saying we want everyone to hear and respond to the gospel. But we recognize that that day of wrath will also be the day of justice and deliverance. We have the new song this morning that's one of our songs we're going to be singing a lot during the series, Even So Come. And that day, it refers to being a day of justice. And it is going to be a day of justice. It's going to be a day where God is going to deliver His people who are suffering. He's going to deliver them. He's going to give them their eternal reward. And so we look forward to that day. A holy people look forward and long for the day when Christ returns, when evil is vanquished and faith is rewarded. If you're not looking forward to that day, you're not looking around enough because it's a mess out there. I mean, how many of you really look forward to watching the 6 o'clock news at night? Because it's just full of all kinds of cheery stories, right? Because everything in our world is getting better, right? I mean, you look and we've got, we've got a nut job in Syria using chemical weapons to kill little children. We've got a crazy man in North Korea doing everything he can to develop nuclear weapons because I'm sure he'll use them for good ends, right? I mean, this is what's going on around us. We need deliverance from this, and that only comes at the return of Christ. And so a holy people not only look back to their own election and God's loving and choosing them, look around to the people who are lost and need the mission, but we look forward and say, oh, Jesus, even so, come. Remember the book of Revelation that we just spent time in? When you get to the end, John keeps saying, even so, come, Lord Jesus. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Oh, come, Lord Jesus. Because it's the only way righteousness will dwell. Now, the effect of holy hope, Paul tells us, is that a holy hope inspires godly living and work now as we wait and long for the return of our Lord Jesus. This is that holy waiting. As we are waiting, it produces holiness in us. This goes back to verse three that we looked at last week where Paul said, we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you notice there, you've got Work flows out of faith, labor flows out of love, and endurance flows out of it. It's inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so a holy people are sustained and inspired by our hope in the return of Jesus Christ. What Paul's talking about here is not just a general hope in Christ, because as he develops it throughout this letter, it's specifically the hope that Jesus is going to return, that he's going to come back and he's going to fix this mess. And Paul says You are inspired into endurance. You continue the race. You hang in there because of that hope. Our hope in the triumphant return of Jesus inspires us to live for him now, no matter what the consequences are. And this is where, again, we've taken that and we've turned it into Humpty Dumpty theology. And and some Christians like talking about eschatology because it has nothing to do with now. And Paul scratches his head and says, it has everything to do with now. It has to do with how you and I live right now. It inspires us. No one should be more hopeful than God's people, for we know who rules, how the story will end, and the glorious life that awaits us. A pessimistic Christian is an oxymoron. It it really can't exist. Something's wrong, because pessimism means things are going to get worse. Well, friend, they're not ultimately going to get worse. They're going to get far, far better. He is going to come. He is going to set up a righteous rule. He is going to love and reward his people. We are going to see and bear the weight of his glory. We are going to glorify and enjoy him forever. And if that is true, and if that is my hope, how can I be anything other than optimistic? It doesn't matter what happens between now and then. We know where we're going. We know who rules and what is going to happen for us. And so you and I should not only be thankful as we saw last week because of the gospel, we should be optimistic. Optimistic. Because God is going to work all things for his glory and our good. Now, what does this mean for us? How do we apply the word? And we will conclude by coming to the waters of baptism. First, do I understand holiness? Do I understand holiness? Okay, we, Bay Ridge Christian Church, does not believe in nor engage in humpty-dumpty theology. Words do have meanings. They don't mean whatever we say they mean. They mean what they mean. And it's not that hard to figure out what they mean. And we don't want to take a word like holiness or even a word like eschatology and pour our own meanings into it. So, Do we understand true biblical holiness? When I say holy, what pictures come to our mind? And to the extent they are those things I mentioned earlier, we're we're engaging in Humpty Dumpty theology. Do I understand that the primary biblical meaning of holiness is that we are God's chosen and called people? We are holy because he loved us because he chose us, because he called us. That's why we're holy. He plucked us out and made us his own. And it's the work of God that is our holiness, not our own work. So do I see, as we continue to tease out this question, that holiness is primarily about my standing as part of God's people, and not inconsequential external things like food and clothing, Paul has to bring this up and fight this constantly as people want to say, well, it's about keeping this day or it's about not eating this kind of food or about this external thing. And Paul says all that stuff was shadows. The reality, the substance is found in Christ and in the new covenant. We're not concerned about those inconsequential external things. Paul says, I'm no closer to God for eating or not eating food and I'm no further away from God based on that. Holiness is not about those external things. It's primarily that I am God's called and chosen people. I'm part of that people. Do we understand that? And therefore, do we understand holiness begins when I embrace the gospel? Paul here tells the Thessalonians that, look, I know you're called because you believe the gospel. That is a miracle. Do you understand? You are holy, and I am holy because you have a desire to hear the Word of God. Why are you here this morning? You're a strange group of people. You're you're giving up time to come here, and we sing songs that are filled with scriptural references about things that happened thousands of years ago, and you listen to some guy talk out of a book that was written thousands of years ago in a different language to a group of people who are wildly different than you. I mean, you're some strange ducks. Why do you do that? Because the Spirit of God has loved you and called you, and you hunger for this. I remember when I first got saved at 16, my parents thought like I had gotten in some bad drugs in the 70s or something, because all of a sudden I was kept buying bigger and bigger Bibles. And I would just read constantly. They would come back and they're like, what are you doing? I'm I'm reading my Bible. And you would think that might have been comforting with a 16-year-old, right? Given the other things I could have been doing. But they were starting to get worried. I couldn't get enough of God's word all of a sudden. Why was that? Because I was dead, but now I'm alive. I was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now I'm found. That's what holiness is. And it's by the gospel. It's not anything I did. It's what God did. And even my growth in holiness flows out of the gospel. You never move past the gospel. The gospel is what motivates us into holiness. It's what provides the power for holiness. The law cannot save, nor can the law give you power to be holy. It can show us what holiness in action would look like, but it can't give the power. Only the gospel does that. So do I see that as I meditate, and grow in the gospel, it's going to produce the fruit of a lifestyle that's distinct from the culture and its gods. But that's not by me trying to set out to be weird. That's by me just simply meditating on the gospel, walking with Jesus, and I suddenly find myself diverging from this culture and its gods. Do we understand that that's what holiness is about? It's our status as the people of God, not these external things. Secondly, am I fueled by hope in the mission? To be holy means I have a holy hope, and it means I'm on mission. Am I fueled by hope in the mission? We should be people of hope, but our hope's not anchored in the things of this world or our age, but in God's reign and the return of Christ. So often, Christians, particularly in the West and here in America, we get so wrapped around it and our joy ebbs and flows and comes and goes according to who did what in the election, and what was said, and what got covered last night, and is this thing working out? None of that is the foundation of our hope. Our hope is unshakable because my hope is Jesus is going to return. He is going to rule and reign. He is going to set all things right. He is going to see that everything that moves and lives and breathes brings glory to God, and He is going to do it for God's glory and our good. And that is not going to change no matter what happens tomorrow or Tuesday or Wednesday. It's not going to shift. So my hope is oriented in that, or it should be. And therein lies the question. Am I oriented towards the ultimate goal, the final kingdom of God? Am I oriented to where history is actually heading or am I concerned about all kinds of other things? And the way I can generally tell that is, how, how is my thanksgiving going? How is my joy going? Because if it's ebbing and flowing with things that are happening around me, that's a sign that I'm not oriented towards the ultimate goal. And now, does that hope then inspire and fuel me for mission now? Because when I see that, when I look back, and I see that God has loved me, not because of anything Brett did, but because of something in his character. When I see and recognize that, and then I look forward and I say, what a glorious future. Whatever ups and downs and twists and turns, whatever struggles I might have, Jesus is going to rule, and I am going to hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Here is the kingdom that I have prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. When I realize those two things, those two poles are what is holding me, that fuels me in the mission now. Because I want everybody to hear that good news. I want everybody to respond and say yes to that. There is nobody, nobody that I look at and say, well, I hope you don't get this. I, I hope you get wrath on that day. I mean, if that's my attitude, what one has to question whether I have really understood the gospel in the first place. So is it fueling me for mission now? Am I living in light of eternity, understanding that what we do now, I'm going to use a phrase out of another movie, this one won't be Alice in Wonderland or another tale, but, but gladiator, those words are true. What we do now echoes in eternity. What we do now is of eternal consequence. Not only in believing and responding to the gospel, but in reaching out and telling others about the gospel and sounding the word forth and sending it out. For us, you know, the Thessalonians, it was uh, Macedonia and Achaia. For us, it's would Jesus say to us, hey, you knew you were loved, you knew where you're going, and therefore you were propelled in the mission. Right here in central Maryland into the farthest corners of the earth. And everywhere I go, people are talking about God's work at Bay Ridge and what he's doing. That's what needs to be our hope. That's what we need to be fueled into doing. Am I fueled by hope into mission? Now, we're going to conclude with water baptism. And this is a visible symbol of our internal holiness. Again, because holiness is, we've been set apart. We've been set apart and called by God. We've been separated by God's election, which leads to our embrace of the gospel. In Christ, we are dead to the world. We are dead to its gods. We have, like Israel coming through the Red Sea, all of that stuff is washed away and left behind us, and we are now alive to the true and living God. So Paul says you're buried with him in baptism, you're raised with him to new life. And so we're going to be showing this right now and we live a new life therefore as we wait for the return of Christ. And so I encourage you again this morning if we can go ahead and have the guys come forward, we're going to be doing this water baptism but as always, we want to practice what the Puritans used to refer to as improving on our baptism. If you are here and you are baptized, you're going to see a visible representation of the gospel, you are going to see a visible representation of what happened to you. That when you turn to Christ, in fact, you were buried with him, you were raised with him, and you are living a new life. And so we're going to watch this as the three kids out of the Ruprecht family as uh, they are baptized and... And we will join with them. So I'm going to go ahead, and, and we met with them. And I again want to commend Scott and Naomi. They have done a great job in reaching out and working with the kids on this. Naomi. <laughs> so, okay. Now we now we know it was Naomi. So uh, so they they've worked with the kids, and we met last week to talk. So we're going to give them an opportunity to pray, and then uh, after we pray, we're going to go over here. And I guess are we still doing? You're doing Ryan and Haley, and I'm doing Eli. Okay. We're going to do that for water baptism. So let's stand together and we will conclude with the word of benediction. Then you can come up and give the kids a hug and the whole family. It's a great day to see the gospel continuing. Isn't it wonderful to see the gospel continue from one generation to the next? This is how the gospel came to us. One generation to the next to the next. Our God is faithful. So we'll have the word of benediction then you can come right over here, give them a hug and then come over for the tour. Now may the Lord bless you from Zion all the days of your life. May you see the prosperity of God's people and may you live to see your children's children. Peace be upon you as the holy people of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, go in His blessing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.